Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. That's michael at C-O-C-O-R-I-S dot com. Now, let's hear from Mike. David Hawking, the speaker on the Biola Hour, tells of the time when he was in a racquetball tournament. His partner was a Christian, but he sensed that somehow this fellow was a bit uneasy, and he suspected that it was the shirt that he had on. It read across the front, Jesus is Lord. So he said to his partner, uh, does this shirt embarrass you? And the fellow confessed that it did. And he said, would you feel more comfortable if I changed shirts? And again, the fellow said that he would. So Dave went over and changed shirts. He took off the one that said, Jesus is Lord, and he put on another. That shirt said, Jesus saves you from hell. (laughs) You know, David, that sounds like something he would do. But it all brings to mind the fact that some people are embarrassed by the gospel. They're embarrassed about the things of the Lord. I suspect that in some cases that is because of the inadequacy that they feel as individuals. If they were to go to talk to somebody about Jesus Christ or to talk to them about the gospel, they feel that that person might say something uh, or ask something that they couldn't handle, and so they feel inadequate, and consequently they just don't talk about the Lord. Or they feel like they would be intimidated. I mean, there is this general attitude of people that don't know the Lord that... uh, Christians uh, sometimes just aren't the smartest people in the world. Uh, From the viewpoint of the Apostle Paul and what he has to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he talks about the fact that uh, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. And uh, if you've ever talked about the Lord very much or done any witnessing at all, you know that that is very accurate. That is the attitude, the feel that you get from some people that don't know the Lord. And so that just sometimes causes you to retreat and uh, be a bit embarrassed about uh, talking about the things of the Lord. Well, in contrast to that, you have the Apostle Paul who comes along and says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, what I would like to know is, How did he get to the place where he was not embarrassed or ashamed in any way about the Lord or the gospel? Well, if you will turn with me to Romans chapter 1, Paul tells us how he got that way. Actually, the first 17 verses of Romans is something of an introduction to this whole book. In the opening verses, 1 through 7, He gives us a salutation, which simply uh, tells us who the author is, Paul, who the recipients were, the saints at Rome, and gives a bit of a greeting. What is critical in that uh, 
paragraph is that Paul says, as a matter of fact, this is the main thought of those first seven verses, that he was separated unto the gospel. He says that in verse 1. And of course, the apostle Paul was the example and pattern for all believers, so there is this sense in which all of us are separated unto the gospel. The next paragraph begins in chapter 1, verse 8, and actually goes all the way through verse 17. Thus far in our study of Romans, we've gotten down through verse 15. But in this second paragraph, the Apostle Paul talks about the fact that um, he prayed for them, and he prayed, well, first of all, he thanked God for them, and then he prayed that he might be able to come to them. In the second paragraph, which begins at verse 8, he talks about the fact that he wanted to come to Rome because he was a debtor to all men. Now, in verse 1 he says he was separated under the gospel. Now, later in the passage he talks about the fact that he is a debtor by virtue of the fact that he knows the gospel. He is a debtor to give it to everybody in the world. And so he says in verse 15, So much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel realizing that he was separated under the gospel, realizing that his having the gospel made him a debtor, he was ready to discharge his debt. But now that readiness that is mentioned in verse 15 is further explained in verse 16. He was ready because he was not ashamed. Look with me, if you will, at chapter 1, verse 16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, in a sense, these two verses, which are our text for the study today, is nothing more than an explanation for why he is ready. In verse 15, he says, I'm ready to preach the gospel. And then he says, for, because, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of it. So in a sense, these two verses are given as an explanation of his readiness to preach the gospel. In another sense, these two verses, and this is uh, generally recognized among Bible teachers and scholars, that these two verses, and particularly verse 17, states the subject and the theme for the whole book of Romans. So what I want us to do is look at these two verses and uh, see why Paul says he was not embarrassed, he was not ashamed of the gospel, why he was ready to proclaim it even at the pagan capital of the world, Rome. And in the process, we're going to discover what the whole book of Romans is about. To get us started, let me suggest that the subject of these two verses is nothing more than the gospel. After all, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, let me pause and uh, suggest again that you need to know what the gospel is. And you need to know the passage in the Bible that defines the gospel. It is, you do know. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 5 or 1 through 8 or 1 through 11, wherever you want to stop, 
But basically, it's in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, where Paul says, I delivered unto you, first of all, that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he arose again from the dead, and that he was seen. And then he says the gospel basically is Christ died for our sins and Christ arose from the dead. That is the good news of salvation by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's the subject of these two verses. He says in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Now, why, Paul? Why were you not embarrassed by the gospel? Well, look at your Bible rather carefully. In verse 16, he says, For it is the power of God to salvation. If you've got a pen and don't mind marking your Bible, I want you to circle that for just a second. Then look at the first word in verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. He is saying at the first part of verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And then it seems to me, he gives us two reasons he was not ashamed of the gospel. The first begins in the middle of verse 16, and the second begins at the first part of verse 17. All right, here's what he says. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. His first reason, very simply, is that he was not ashamed of the gospel because it was the power of God to salvation. Now, that's a very simple statement, uh, one that's frankly familiar to most Christians who know anything at all about the Scripture. But I'm not sure it's always understood. The little word translated to in the Greek text gives the idea of the aim or the goal so that he is saying the gospel is the power of God which, whose goal it is to bring salvation. Now, what does he mean by salvation? You're going to probably think that's an incredibly elementary question and you're going to want to know why I'm even asking it. Well, it is important that we... Uh, ask and answer that question because uh, the word saved in the New Testament means several different things. Now, this is very important if you're going to understand your Bible. The Greek word saved simply means to be delivered, to be rescued. Sometimes in the New Testament, it's being rescued from danger, like being saved from a storm or some such thing. Sometimes it's being saved from disease. The prayer of faith shall save the sick. Sometimes you could be saved from death. Now, all of those are uh, physical applications of being saved. We use the word saved to talk about a spiritual deliverance. But even then, it gets complicated. Because in the New Testament, we are told that we have been saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Past tense. We are then told that we are being saved. 1 Corinthians 1.18 talks about 
to those of us who are being saved. The gospel is the wisdom and power of God. And then there is a sense in which we shall be saved. So if you take the word saved and just talk about its spiritual application, it can have three different tenses. I have been saved, I am being saved, I shall be saved. That sound like double talk to you? That's a very critical theological point. Let me explain. I have been saved from the penalty of sin. I am in the process of being saved from the power of sin. And in the future, when the Lord comes back, I will be saved from the presence of sin. My favorite illustration of this has to do with uh, Bishop Westcott. He was an Anglican bishop who lived in the latter part of the 19th century, uh, a Greek scholar of great note. He was once on the streets in London, as I recall, and uh, he met a Salvation Army lassie. And uh, she saw that he had his collar on backwards, and her attitude was he might be just a good candidate to uh, witness to. And so she said to him, are you saved? And Bishop Westcott is reported to have replied, do you mean esothen, sosodzomai, or sothesomai? And she said, huh? And then he had to explain to her that those were the three Greek words for, I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. Dr. O. Rodmacher once stood up before a congregation and said, you are looking at an unsaved preacher. Huh? We would be shocked at the very thought. But then he went on to explain, I have been saved from the penalty of sin, I am being saved from the power of sin, but I'm not totally saved yet. And I didn't have to go through all that Greek theology for you to know that. You knew that already, didn't you? You knew I wasn't completely saved yet. And you know you aren't completely saved yet, right? Now, what I'm trying to tell you is that this verse is saying that the gospel is the power of God unto the aim of the gospel and its power is to get us completely saved. That it is the rest of the book of Romans that begins to unfold all of that. That it is not just past tense salvation that this book has in mind. It's both past, present, and future. So that he is saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God whose aim is to save us totally and completely. Now, he further says in verse 16 that that salvation is for everyone who believes. That it is as you believe that you are saved, frankly, and especially in the first two senses, that you uh, trust in Jesus Christ and you are saved in the past tense of the word, and you continue to walk by faith, and you are saved in the present tense of the word. But be all that as it may, I um, want to pause here for just a second 
And um, talk about the word believe. It's a very critical word in the word of God, in the New Testament, and particularly in the book of Romans. What does the word believe mean? The Greek word simply means two basic things. The idea is that you give mental assent to something, you accept it as true. And secondly, that you rest on it, rely on it, depend on it. So, the illustration I've used so many times I've worn it out, is that it's one thing to believe that chair will hold me up. It's another thing to go sit in it. When the Bible says believe, it's not talking about just giving mental assent to. It's talking about relying on or depending on or resting on something or someone. So it is that when we understand who Jesus Christ is, that he died on the cross, that he arose from the dead, and we trust in him, we rest in him, we rely upon him, then we are saved. Uh, one of the best statements on this I have ever read is in a commentary, uh, one of the classic commentaries on the book of Romans, and it appears in that commentary at Romans 1.16. It is by... Charles Hodge, who was uh, the theology professor at Princeton University many years ago. Here's what he says. The faith, therefore, which is connected with salvation, includes knowledge, that is, perception of the truth and its quality, assent, or the persuasion of the truth of the object of faith, and trust or reliance. The exercise or state of mind expressed by the word faith as used in the scripture is not mere assent or mere trust. It is in the intelligent perception, reception, and reliance on the truth as revealed in the gospel. End of quote. Now, what he has done, and theologians generally do this, is he is saying the Greek word means to give mental assent and to trust. But before you can give mental assent to something, you've got to know about it. Ah, that's saying the obvious. So he adds the third element of knowledge and defines faith as first knowledge, then mental assent or acceptance of something is valid or true, and then dependence on it. Now in the case of the gospel, it is hearing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died on the cross to pay for sin, that he arose from the dead, Having that knowledge, you give mental assent to it and trust solely and only in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Now, Paul says in verse 16, the gospel is the power of God to save people from sin, all facets of sin. And it's for all who will but believe and trust in him. And then he adds, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. There's a bit of a debate as to which, uh, what that means. Some say that simply means that historically the gospel went to the Jew first, and it obviously did. And others argue that this means that the gospel ought to go to the Jew before it goes to everybody else. Um, Bible teachers, I think, generally tend to believe that this means that historically it went to the Jew first. Those involved in Jewish missions argue that it means you've got to give the gospel to the Jew before you give the gospel to the Gentile. Matter of fact, I had lunch recently with a, a very uh, dear fellow that's involved in Jewish missions, and he uh, said this verse demonstrates that we've got to give the gospel to the Jew first. Well, I don't want to argue with that. I just want to point out in passing that both of those interpretations are very often given toward this phrase. But in the context 
of this book, I think what Paul is simply saying is it's for everybody. From the, from the Jewish point of view, the whole world was divided into two groups, the Jews and the Gentiles. So what Paul is saying is the gospel is the power of God to salvation to everybody who believes from the Jew to the Gentile, for everybody. So I don't care who you are or what your background is or what you've done, the gospel is for you. From the Jew to the Gentile, from the rich to the poor, from the educated to the uneducated, it's for everybody. Many years ago, about the turn of the century, there was a story told of a chaplain who spent the night in a hospital uh, trying to win a man to Christ who was on his deathbed. This man had lived a life of crime, and it was obvious that uh, he was about to die. And so the chaplain uh, kept telling him all night, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses you from all sin. In the wee hours of the morning, the man acknowledged that he was trusting Jesus Christ as his Savior, and shortly after that, he died. As the chaplain told the story, he left the hospital. He'd spent all night beside this man's bed, and uh, he was walking on his way home when he stopped uh, to get some breakfast, and he picked up a newspaper, and on the front page were the headlines that the king of that country, which happened to be Sweden, had passed away. And the story in the paper told of how before he died, he had confessed again his faith in Jesus Christ. And the chaplain said, it's for everybody. It's from the king to the criminal, for the Jew to the Gentile. Now, let me just pause here and say it's for you too, my friend. You too can be forgiven of your sin. It doesn't matter how many times you committed it. It doesn't matter how big it was or little it was. Jesus Christ died for it, and this gospel is for everybody who will but believe. So, Paul is saying the gospel is the power of God, a word dynamite, the word from which we get dynamite. It's the power of God, the dynamite of God that's able to save anybody who will but trust in Jesus Christ. And beyond that, if they continue to trust, they will be saved not only from the penalty of sin, but the very power of sin. And that's his explanation for why he's not embarrassed about the gospel. But he gives us a second reason. Look at verse 17. He says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, verse 17 is a further explanation for what he said in verse 16, which is indicated by the fact that it begins with the little word for. But as in the case of verse 16, there are several things in this verse that we must understand that are critical for understanding what follows in the book of Romans. For example, he says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. So his first point is the gospel is the power of God to salvation. His second point is that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. Now the problem is, what does he mean by the righteousness of God? This is very important. There are two possibilities. The little phrase, the righteousness of God, 
can either refer to an attribute of God, that is, God is righteous, or it can refer to an act of God whereby he declares someone else righteous. That's known as the doctrine of justification. Now, what does Paul have in mind? Is he saying that the gospel reveals that God is righteous? Or is he saying that the gospel reveals that God declares other people righteous? Well, to ask the question that way is to almost answer it. For the gospel primarily reveals that God declares people righteous. So I think the context of these two verses and for sure what follows in the book of Romans demonstrates that he has the act of God whereby he declares sinners righteous in man and not the attribute talking about God's personal characteristic of being righteous. Now having said that, I think I very quickly need to add that um, he gets down to chapter 3 and argues that uh, God is righteous in declaring people righteous. So both are implied, though I think the primary reference in verse 17 is to God declaring other people righteous. The second problem in verse 17 is that he says the righteousness of God is revealed from heaven from faith to faith. Now, what does that mean? What is from faith to faith? You know, Bible study can really get technical sometimes. One of the more most scholarly commentaries written on Romans in recent years is by a man named Cranfield. It's in two volumes, and it's heavy, heavy stuff. He gets to this verse, he gets to that little phrase, from faith to faith, and says there are eight possible interpretations of that. You ready for these? You want to copy these down? Boy, you don't look excited at all. Well, I'm not going to bore you with all eight of them. But let me just tell you the two most common, uh, the two most likely possibilities. One is that uh, this is simply an intensification. So he is saying the righteousness of God is revealed and this righteousness is by faith. And it's just uh, an emphatic declaration that justification is by faith. The second possibility is that the verse means just exactly what it says. That the righteousness of God is from faith, and that Greek construction means that its source is out of faith, and it is to faith, meaning that I trust in Jesus Christ and when I do, God declares me righteous. And that one of the things God has in mind is that I would then continue to trust him, believing, if you will, and that as I do, it is then that the righteousness of God is produced in my life. Now, of the two most common, it is my opinion that the latter one is the one that Paul has in mind. 
Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life I now live, I live by faith. So I think what Paul is telling us in this verse is that I am justified by faith and that God then wants me to continue to believe him and that as I trust Christ, I am declared righteous and as I continue to walk by faith, I can have the very righteousness of God produced in my life. Now, in a sense, verse 17 is given as an explanation of verse 16. That what I'm saying to you now about from faith to faith is exactly what I said a moment ago about the word salvation. I am saved from the penalty of sin by faith. I am saved from the power of sin by faith. I take God at his word. And as I trust Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sin, I am declared righteous. And as I walk by faith, the very righteousness of God is produced in my life. Now, you've got to keep all this straight. This is critical stuff in the book of Romans. I have been saved by faith, and I am being saved by faith. I have been declared righteous, and I am being declared righteous. And I'll go one step further and say the basis of both of those, what we commonly call justification and sanctification, is the death of Jesus Christ. Because he died, I can be declared righteous. And because he died and arose from the dead and lives within, I have the power to live a godly life. That is Romans, actually 1 through 8. When we get down to Romans chapter uh, 3, we're going to see that he says Christ died, and when I trust him, I am justified. I am declared righteous. Now, most Christians are familiar with that. So let me just underscore in your thinking for a minute that the second thing is true. Turn to Romans chapter 6 for a second. You remember in the first part of the chapter, he says that Christ died and Christ arose and uh, we were spiritually baptized into his death and into his resurrection. Now look at verse, uh, then he says we're to reckon on that. We're to know that it happened. We're to reckon on it. That is, we're to believe it. And then he says this, verse 16. Do you not know to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey? You are that one slave whom you obey, whether to sin, to death, or of obedience to righteousness. Now, what I want you to notice is of obedience to righteousness. That is, as I trust Christ, there's a sense in which I am declared righteous. Then, as I move into the phase of sanctification and realize that when I trusted Jesus Christ, I was put into him, and I died to the world, and I died to sin, and I was made alive to God. And I begin to reckon that true. 
and I begin to walk in faith, simply taking God at his word, believing that I ought to live my life according to this book, not being wise after my own conceit, and saying, okay, God, I'll do this your way, not my way, then the very practical righteousness of God is produced in my life, and that's what Romans 6, 16 is talking about. Or another verse I'd give you for your consideration is uh, James chapter uh, 1, uh, verse um, 20. He says, be slow to sp uh, speak, uh, swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. And what he is saying in that verse is, if you get angry and you spout off at the mouth, and you don't listen to God, then the very practical righteousness of God is not going to be worked out in your life. But if, on the other hand, you, don't, you aren't controlled by anger or guilt or fear or just your own self-will, but you just come to the Scripture and you believe God, you're going to believe what He said and do what He said, then as you do, you will live a righteous, godly life. I believe that's what from faith, which is justification, to faith, which is sanctification, is all about. It's talking about the fact that we are saved by faith and we are being saved by faith. Now, back in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, he says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from heaven, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, as you know, that is a quotation from Habakkuk chapter 2. Paul quotes that verse in Habakkuk three times in the New Testament. In Habakkuk, it's rather obvious that what's going on is Habakkuk is a, obviously a believer. He's a prophet, and he's questioning the way God's running the universe. And God says to him, just trust me. The, the man that's just before me learns to walk by faith. So that uh, that's the context in the book of Habakkuk. In the book of Galatians, Paul quotes that verse to prove that we are justified by faith. And I think he is applying Habakkuk. Uh, if you walk before God by faith, and the way you commence that life is by beginning by faith. So Paul quotes Habakkuk to demonstrate that we are justified by faith. In the book of Hebrews, he quotes this verse, I think, to demonstrate that we walk by faith. So that in Galatians, the point of the verse is applied to justification, and in the book of Hebrews, it is applied to sanctification. Now here, I think, he says, it is from faith to faith, and he quotes Habakkuk. And I think he could either mean justification or he could mean sanctification. The truth of the matter is that both are by faith in the final analysis. Or as you have heard me said before, and if you haven't, you'll hear me say it now, and if you stick around, you'll hear me say it again, the bottom line in the Bible is faith. 
We are justified by faith. We are sanctified by faith. We live by faith. Meaning, we take God at his word and we do what it says. We obey because we believe it. So, Paul quotes Habakkuk to support what he is saying. By the way, somebody has pointed out that um, Moses gave 613 commandments. How'd you like to walk around with that list trying to figure out what you're supposed to do in a day? Then they point out that David in Psalm 15 seems to reduce the whole list to just 11 precepts. In one passage in Isaiah, he seems to sum up the law in six precepts. Micah reduces the whole list to three. There's one passage in Isaiah that, list, that reduces it to two. But then they say Habakkuk boils it all down to one. The just shall live by faith. And I would say the whole New Testament boils it down to one. The just shall live by faith. You come to Jesus Christ and trust him, and you are regenerated and declared righteous. You then begin to obey the word of God by faith. You believe what God says, you do what God says, and the practical righteousness of God is produced in your life. Now, let me sum all this up. Both of these statements, the, the gospel is the power to salvation, and the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. Both of those statements are given to support the idea, I'm not ashamed of this. So that the sum of this is Paul is saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to salvation to all who believe, as is proven by the fact that believers are justified by faith and they produce practical righteousness by faith. So why should I be ashamed of a message like that? Now, let me point out two things. Number one, that thesis is an introduction to everything that follows in the book of Romans. Many, 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 many expositors have pointed out that Romans 1.17 is the thesis statement, the theme, the subject of all of Romans, namely the righteousness of God. So that in Romans 1, 2, 3, and 4, he is showing us how to be declared righteous. And he starts out by telling us all of us are sinners and we desperately need that kind of righteousness. Then in the middle of chapter 5 actually, but by chapter 6 for sure, he is talking about how this practical righteousness can be produced in our lives in principle. In uh, chapter 6, 7, and 8, he goes through that. In 9, 10, and 11, he discusses the whole problem of the Jew and vindicates the righteousness of God among them. Why didn't they figure out how to practice this righteousness of God? And in those three chapters, he tells us that. Then beginning in chapter 12 and going through chapter 16, he gets very, very specific 
about how to live a righteous life. And he tells us how it affects us in our relationship to government, our relationship to society, and our relationship to the church. So that the theme, the subject of the whole book of Romans is the righteousness of God as it is produced in people. And it is produced in people by faith. You got it. You got it. So if you've trusted Jesus Christ, there's a sense in which you are righteous. You are declared righteous. But if you've trusted Jesus Christ, you need to take God at his word, believe him, and obey him so that you can produce righteousness in your life. That's what Romans is all about, and that's what we're going to talk about in depth in the days to come. But there's a second point I wish to make, and that is, in these two verses, Paul is saying, I'm not ashamed of this. Why, pray tell, should I be ashamed? I'm not ashamed of this stuff. Why, it makes men righteous. Now, folks, uh, let me ask you a question. Are you ashamed of the gospel? I think I'm speaking to some who are and others who aren't, frankly. I think there have been moments in my life when I've been ashamed in certain situations. But by and large, I basically haven't been. I'll tell you why. Because I experienced the very thing Paul's talking about. The gospel of Jesus Christ saved me. And over the years, I have experienced the word of God saving me from all kinds of things, but mainly sin, right? Well, pray tell, why should I be ashamed of that? You know? Tell you what you ought to be ashamed of is sin. That's what destroys people. The wages of sin is death. That's what you ought to be ashamed of. Why be embarrassed by power? The kind of power that is able to make a person righteous. Let me tell you what the world needs. They need some kind of power that can make them righteous. That's what they need. Believest thou this? Do you really? Oh, come on. You know, it sounds like some preacher talking to say that the problem out there is sin. But you know what? The problem out there is sin. And if you don't believe that, just try to practice marriage counseling for a little bit. You know what the problem is in marriage? I want my way. Right? Oh, I know, every story's got its own variation, but it all boils down to, I want my way. That's what he says. And she says, oh yeah, I want my way. Now what's that, huh? You tell me. That's sin, right? You know what those kind of people desperately need? Desperately need. The power of God to salvation. But if you think that's a problem, wait till we all stand before God. And as Paul is going to so vividly demonstrate in the book of Romans, not a one of us is going to be able to stand and say, God, I'm righteous, and 
you ought to count it a privilege to have me in your heaven. Let me tell you what you're going to need in the day you stand before God. You're going to desperately need some righteousness that you don't have and don't have any way under heaven to produce. But, oh, have I got some good news for you. Jesus made it all possible by dying on the cross. And when you trust him, he takes away your sin and gives you his righteousness. I mean, the best news in the whole world is you can stand before God as righteous as Jesus Christ, you wicked sinner, you. That's true, isn't it? By the way, none of us deserve any of that. But that's what we get when we trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. Now, I think that just happens to be the most fantastic message I ever heard. I mean, it solves man's problems from time to eternity. It, it has in seed form the ability to make you righteous now. And it for sure has the ability to declare you righteous before God as you stand before him. I'm supposed to be embarrassed by that? Huh? Absurd. Why, well, if that... If, if you saw people like the Scripture sees them, w what you'd want to do is, let me talk to you real quick, because I know something you just really need to know. Right? Why should I be ashamed of this? Let me put it all like this. If all we had was a gun, the likes of a wooden gun that is under the arm of a scarecrow, I think we'd go very meekly tell people that's what we got. Because a wooden gun under the arm of a scarecrow isn't able to do a thing, right? Why would I want to go tell somebody about that? Hadn't done a thing for me and ain't going to do a thing for them. But that ain't what we got. We don't have a cat pistol. We don't have a wooden gun. Folks, we got dynamite. You understand? And it's able to blow sin right out of a person's life. <laughs> Why should I be embarrassed about that? Are you embarrassed? Well, I unashamedly tell you, I believe the gospel. For in it is the power of God to salvation. It has saved me. And what it told me is saving me. And one of these days, I'm going to be totally saved. Frankly, I'd like for everybody in the whole world to know that. So why should I be ashamed of it? Let's pray. Father, Thank you. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for declaring us righteous in your Son. Thank you for saving us now, daily, as we walk in obedience to your word. Now, Father, give us that same boldness that characterized the Apostle Paul. 
that we can see other people come to know you, come to know your righteousness in the fullest sense of the term. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.